today. I'm hitting the floor at Fanfare NYC, the pop culture art festival like no other, where you never know who or what you're going to bump into. All that and more coming up on this edition of What a Time to Be Alive. I'm Lou, and I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s on a steady diet of comic books, Flame on! cartoons, <laughs> rock and roll, monster and sci-fi films. Flash forward to the present... And all the geek properties I got picked on for enjoying as a kid are now captivating and creating fans globally in the form of comic conventions, major studio films, and hit series. And the momentum shows no signs of slowing down. My fellow geeks, we have won. And to that I say, what a time to be alive. What is up, everyone? This is What a Time to Be Alive, your geek culture podcast. I'm Lou Acosta, and I'm coming to you from the High School of Art and Design in New York City, where they're holding Fanfare NYC, the pop culture art festival like no other. This two-day festival features over 125 artists and vendors selling comics, prints, swag, all sorts of cool stuff. Award-winning guest speakers provide insights about their careers and creative process. Additionally, fans and aspiring artists attend cosplay contests, panel discussions, workshops, and portfolio reviews. I gotta tell you, I was here last year and I had a blast. And it's really gained traction since then. Just looking around, it's bigger, it's better, it's Fanfare NYC. Now, I uh, happen to have a bit of personal connection to the event as I'm art and design alumni. There is so much to see. I see a lot of cosplayers. There's a lot of great guests here. So uh, let's see who we could strike up a chat with, shall we? Hey, everybody. My next guest started his animation career as a designer for animated series such as Thundercats, Silverhawks, and Tiger Sharks. However, he's more well-known for being the co-founder of Spumco, the animation studio that created the Ren and Stimpy show. In the 80s, he also worked at Marvel Comics as an illustrator on many comic titles, including G.I. Joe, Crazy Magazine, Bizarre Adventures, Savage Tales, Conan the Barbarian, and The Nam. As if that weren't enough, he currently teaches at the School of Visual Arts in New York City and is one hell of a gentleman to boot. Watpa Nation, I give you Mr. Bob Camp. Bob, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing fantastic. So we're here in the middle of Fanfare NYC mm -hmm. in the High School of Art and Design. How did you get involved with Fanfare? Uh, they contacted us. Uh, Michelle Ford, my, my partner in crime and, and life partner and fiance and business partner and all that, they, they, I think they contacted her and uh, said, you want to come? So that's, we're here. Yeah. Well, Bob, I'm going to set up the timeline for you. I'm in college, and at the time, the biggest thing amongst the kids my age was the Ren and Stimpy show. And it was this twisted phenomenon mm -hmm. for me and my friends. If I look back and I break it down with its ads for Log, and it's, it seems like there were shows within shows with Powdered Toast Man. It almost plays as this twisted variety show. How the hell did you guys come up with that? Uh, Log was funny because when we did the first half hour of Brennan Simpy or 22 minutes, which is, you know, when you take out the commercials, you're left with 22 minutes of, of footage. We were a minute short and we knew we wanted to do fake commercials. And I was talking to John Kay and I said, what, what should we do? He said, do Log. That's all he said. So I had tapes of, uh, of commercials from the 50s, 60s, and 70s of, of uh, animated serial commercials, things like that. And I studied them, uh, uh, and I basically stole kind of a lot of different stuff from a lot of different commercials and made log out of it. Uh, 
the kid, the kid in it, is Marky Mapo from Mapo Cereal Ads. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's Marky Mapo. We, even the voice and everything is Marky Mapo. And the, the log song, which I wrote. It's is, better than bad, it's good. It's Slinky. Uh, it's the Slinky song exactly, but with a little bit of a change here and there, and I think it's in a different key, but it's basically we swipe that straight up from Slinky. Fantastic. It, it's, it's stayed with me throughout my whole life. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, you want to hear a funny story about that? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a documentary that uh, just premiered at, at Sundance uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I'm interviewed in it. And I don't know if it's in the film. I haven't seen the final cut yet. But they interviewed me and they said something about Log. And like everybody knows the words to the song Log. And I said, yeah, screw you, Paul McCartney. I bet more people know the words to Log than Hey Jude. <laughs> All due respect, Paul McCartney's a pretty nice guy. <laughs> I don't care. You know, John Lennon compared himself to, to Jesus, you know. See, the, the, the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. I love Paul McCartney. I love the Beatles. But, you know, I don't think he's above a dig once in a while. And just, you know, if it's good for a joke, fine. Absolutely. And if, he, and if it's a problem for Paul, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Bob Camp taking on the Beatles. I love it. So, Ren and Stimpy also set the tonality for, for many animated shows and shows that, that followed it to this very day. Most notably, SpongeBob SquarePants, and the influence, would you agree, is apparent. Yeah, Steven Hillenburg, I think, denied it to his final day that, that it influenced him, but there was an article, I think it was in Esquire magazine at some point, and they were, they were talking to great creative types that, that had a lot of success, and, and the focus of each one of these uh, interviews through the magazine was their inspiration. And the theme of the whole article was, what inspires great artists? And he didn't mention Ren and Snippy at all in the article, but in the article was a picture of the piece of paper that had the very first drawings of SpongeBob on it. And in the center of the picture of the piece of paper was the best drawing of Stimpy I ever saw. And I thought, well, screw you, Steve, you know, come on, fess up. You kind of were inspired and it's okay, you know, I, I, and I don't really mean screw you, Steve. I just mean, come on, fess up, admit it, because I'll admit freely that uh, in the pilot of Ren and Stimpy, half the characters we straight up stole out of Milk Gross comic books. You know, uh, we were inspired in everything we did. We, we swiped from everybody and, you know, tipped our hat right and left to, to whoever we could. And I think everybody does that. And I think the idea of anything being original is naive. You know, I think everything is, is based on, on something else. And we all stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, isn't it that every creative sensation is inspired by those who came before us? Sure. And people ask me sometimes, like, aren't, doesn't it bug you when I see people copying Ren and Stimpy? Like, no, I don't care. You know, good. That means they're paying attention. Maybe they, they're inspired. They like the show enough to steal from it. That's, that's fine. And I, you know, it's art. You know, it, it comes and goes and, you know, it's all cool. No worries. Are you flattered by it? Sure, sure. But I, I, don't, I don't really take credit for everything in the show, which if I did, I would be lying. And uh, I didn't create the characters. John created the characters. So we created the show together and there were other people involved. There was Lynn Naylor and Jim Smith and Chris Riccardi and Vincent Waller and just tons and tons of really talented people. And it was one of those kind of Beatles moments where it was the right people at the right time and their stuff just 
just caught on, you know, and this, the same with, with Ren and Snippy. It was at the right place at the right time. And we were lucky because Vanessa Coffey convinced Nickelodeon when they wanted to go into the animation business that you have to give creators a chance. You have to ha let them have a vision and you have to do cartoons based upon their ideas and not based upon some toy that Hasbro's putting out or something like that. Uh, so we were lucky. Uh, we had a lot of support from Vanessa Coffey and Mary Harrington and the other producers on the show. And we had uh, a network that, at least for a while, put up with a lot of crap from us, you know? It's interesting you say that because uh, going back in and watching Ren and Stimpy from that lens, I almost felt like we were watching something that we shouldn't have been. I have to ask this question. Were you guys sober when you made it? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> you know, uh, I, that is so validating right now, Bob. <laughs> we, uh, there's a guy named Tom Freston who was uh, in charge of MTV. And uh, one day he showed up at my office, right, in, uh, in Beverly Hills. We moved to Beverly Hills after Spumco went down and we became Games Animation and we were in Beverly Hills. And he showed up and he said, come on, let's go in your office, let's have a talk. And we sat down and he said, Bob, you know, I've gotten some, some comments from some people and uh, there's some concern about drug use at, at, at uh, Ren and Stimpy. And I said, wait a minute, excuse me, Tom, you work at MTV, music television, right? With a lot of rock stars, right? And you make music videos, right? Okay, okay. And you're concerned about our drug use? All right. Well, I'm gonna confess to you right now, you caught us red-handed and we have a problem. We've been having a rash of a lot of headaches, so we're chewing aspirin and we're, and we're crushing up aspirin and we're snorting it and we're, we're a bunch of aspirin heads. And I apologize you caught us and we'll work on it. We'll, we'll, We'll seek some help. And he went, he kind of looked at me kind of funny and smiled and said, okay, see you later, Bob. And he walked away, you know. <laughs> hey, ibuprofen is a, is a strange addiction, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, but again, going back to the Ren and Stimpy show, it, I didn't feel that the target audience was kids between 5 to 12. I felt like it was intended for a, like, the younger adult, like high school, college age audience. Okay, well, first of all, none of us ever had any assumption about who the show is for or should be for. We made those cartoons for ourselves. We didn't make them for kids. Screw kids, they can go watch puppet shows. I don't care, we didn't make the show for kids. The cartoons that influenced us were Looney Tunes cartoons, which were family entertainment. They were theatrically produced or theatrically released. TV didn't exist at that point. There wasn't the option of watching TV and TV hadn't become the, the universal babysitter that you suddenly had to worry about what your kids were watching. And that was what we were doing. We were making cartoons for mom and dad and the kids and the weird Uncle Fred and, and whoever wanted to watch it. Uh, so I, 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 don't, I don't pretend that we made it for kids or, or anything like that. And I think, the, honestly, the idea of, of uh, broadcasting down to kids is a big mistake. And I think that, that it's a form of mind control. You know, it's like, it's like you know, making kids stand in line to go to the bathroom in elementary school. It's just, it's, it's some kind of weird, concept about behavior and all that kind of stuff and about things that I don't buy. And you know, you go, you go and pitch a show to a network 
and they're gonna they'll say, oh, we're looking for uh, content for kids six to 11 years old. And my, con my comment on that is like, what? Six to, why? Why did you pick those numbers? Is it like, you know, if a kid is 5.5 years old, no way in hell we're gonna let you watch this show because you're too young? How do you know they're too young? I, I knew a kid who was seven who wrote epic poetry. There's 22 year olds I know who can't even write their own name. You know, and the idea of keeping kids from seeing something because you're protecting them, is just friggin' stupid. You know, I mean, up until pretty recently, kids grew up in families and watched their fathers and brothers die in battle. They watched their moms die in childbirth. Death was a normal part of life. Life was awful and you dealt with it and kids learned how to deal with it early and you didn't try to protect them from, from information. You know, I, I don't buy into it. I think it's stupid and pointless and counterproductive. And these days, it's especially stupid because kids have computers, kids have phones, kids watch porn. Yeah. And if parents think their kids aren't watching porn, they're naive and stupid, you know, and maybe they should talk to them about why they shouldn't watch porn and, and teach them to make good decisions on their own without trying to, to police them. You know, I don't, the whole helicopter parenting thing is a big mistake, you know, and I, I don't buy into it. So well said, because I feel like in this age of quote, uber sensitivity, people tend to contradict themselves. Like they'll say, they'll try and monitor their kids and say that they can't watch a certain thing because they don't fit that age group. But yet they're dealing with the internet and which is an open portal and portals go both ways. And there's a lot of stuff. And to be kids to. are sneaky. I oh, was a gotcha. sneaky kid. Were you a sneaky kid? Oh, I was absolutely. Yeah, I was very sneaky kids. You know, like I you're out. I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think just teaching your kids to be smart, teaching them how to how to know the BS when they hear it and and, you know, who to trust, who not to trust and make good decisions on their own. Yeah, and, you know. and, and that also lends to like dumbing down animated entertainment because you mentioned Looney Tunes before, which generations of us grew up on. They were intended for film audiences, but a lot of people along the way, generations along, along the way saw them in syndication. By today's standards, they would never make air because they would be deemed, quote, too violent. And the Three Stooges. I, I, I am who I am because of the Three Stooges. Hilarious. Yeah, and, and when, I was, when I was like 12 years old, my brother uh, ran a business out of a head shop selling carnations on street corners. He hired hippies. This was like 68, right? Summer of love time, that kind of stuff. And so I, at 12, I was this, uh, a 12-year-old hippie selling carnations on street corners and spending all my time hanging out in head shops, reading R. Crumb and, and Zap Comics and Captain Pissgums and Abby Hoffman Steal This Book. They made those, those books and the Air Pirate Funnies made me into the person I am. All, all of the craziness and the influence of, of Ren and Stimpy come from Mad Magazine. They come from Harvey Kurtzman. They come from, from uh, uh, Looney Tunes, uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoons, just whatever we could get our hands on to watch. And, and so there's a lot of influence, but it, it, not all of it is politically correct. A lot of it totally isn't, you know, but that's okay. I, I was in high school reading uh, National Lampoon. My goals in life were to work for Mad Magazine and work for National Lampoon. I never got into Mad, but I did movie parodies for Crazy Magazine, which was just as good for me. And, and I got to work for Lampoon too, which 
I'm happy about to this day. Yeah, I got to talk about Crazy Magazine with you, yeah. which is one of my favorite titles. So let's go back to your time at Marvel. I could go down the list. G.I. Joe, the Nam, Conan, the Barbarian. But the unsung hero that you worked on was Crazy Magazine, which was Marvel's answer to Mad Magazine. Such a fun title during arguably Marvel's, one of Marvel's most prosperous decades. The I mean, 80s was a great time to be at Marvel. And I was there. Tell me about it because... Well, I grew up during the 80s, so I'm the fan reading, like, you know, shooting with Jim Shooter in yeah, the back yeah, of comics, yeah. and I had this visualization, all fans did. First of all, what Marvel did that I, I felt was so essential was it made the creators rock stars. It endeared the reader to the creator, and I had this perception of a kid of these sprawling offices at Marvel, this bullpen that was, like, maybe a city block wide, what was it really like over there? It wasn't city block wide, but it was a wonderful place. I was, I'd sit in the bullpen working there. I'd sit next to Frank Giacoya and Vinny Coletta and George Russos and, and Jack Abel and uh, John Romita, John Romita Jr., Bob Layton. Uh, uh, just a lot of great artists were there, a lot of great creators. They were there every day. I was around them working, and at the time, uh, when I was in my early to mid-twenties, I looked like I was 12. You know, I was like the last kid to finish growing, you know? And uh, so, instead of treating me like a kid, they treated me like an equal. And they gave me jobs that, that it would take 10 people to do. Like, Larry Hama was great. He was, oh, and to tell you how I got into Marvel, first of all, is I was doing caricatures and portraits uh, in Promistown, Massachusetts on Cape Cod in 1980, or 80, 80 1980. And I met a cartoonist named Gary Hallgren, who was one of the uh, original Air Pirates from the underground comic, The Air Pirates Funnies, with Bobby London and Sherry Flanagan and those guys. And uh, they were taking on Disney, doing, you know, uh, pot-smoking, uh, sexy uh, Mickey and Minnie cartoons, you know. Uh, and and uh, so I met Gary, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm working on Crazy Magazine for Larry Hama in New York. Why don't you come to New York? You can you can live in my studio, and and you work on Crazy Magazine. He introduced me to Larry. Larry just right away started letting me do movie parodies, uh, and then when Crazy folded after a few years, he said, "Okay, uh, now you're John Buscema's inker." And I'm like, "What?" And I had to ink John Buscema, uh, so I asked the guys around the studio like. Who should I look at to ink John? Because he's famous for not liking anyone's inks. They said they, they like, he likes his brother Sal's inks. So I would look at Sal Buscema's inks when I'm making John Buscema. And I ran into John at a con one time and I introduced myself. And he laughed at me. He said, ha ha, you're that kid that tries to ink like Sal. And I, <laughs> and I, I couldn't have been more happy. I was overjoyed that he picked up on that. That was a big success for me. But anyway, so I'm working in the bullpen. And Larry said, okay, you, you're in charge of, of all art corrections for the entire Marvel line now. So any book, any editor had, had art corrections needed on a page, like a panel replaced or a scene flipped or characters taken out or pages redrawn, anything like that. I had to do it and I had to do it in the style of whoever drew it. So I, I just by... Uh, my, my survival technique, I had to learn how to draw like all these different people, and it was great. So I became kind of a shapeshifter. And 
to this day, I can work on any kind of project and just fall into whatever style they're doing. So if you want serious looking stuff, I can do that. If you want straight up comic book stuff, you want to do war comics, you want to do funny animal comics, animation design, Disney, whatever, whatever it is, I'll just fake it and do it. And so it's kind of a survival instinct, you know? Yeah, sounds like uh, the trial by fire served you well. It did, and it still does, you know? So the, the energy at that time, the creative energy being surrounded by, you know, you're all greats. I mean, the energy must have been kinetic. I mean... It was terrific. I, I call them the Mark Grunewald years. Remember Mark Grunewald? Absolutely. He was an editor there, and he was, he was kind of like the cheerleader. And him and, him and uh, Mike Carlin had an office together, and they were the, the nutty fun guys, you know? They were like, like a 24-hour kid show in the place, and they had a lot of fun, and... And they were there around the clock working on stuff. And it was just a fun time to be there. I felt really lucky. I don't, I don't think there's anything that can compare to it now. You know, it's all very corporate and, and kind of not, not so much located in one place. Everybody uses the internet to move stuff around. So there's not the camaraderie or the, the connectivity that there was back then. I mean, every day there was amazing artists coming in there that I worshiped and we were peers, you know. So I'm a lucky guy. I was in the right place at the right time. It's it's funny you mentioned like things being very corporate now, and um, I have to address that from from the perspective of someone or a lot of fans who are diehard comic book fans, readers, collectors. Growing up, a lot of the stuff coming out of film studios is really well done and has so much care put into it, and is as a result so redemptive for fans. But with the now mainstream popularity of cinematic universes and such, obviously the comic storytelling has influenced the adaptation to film. Mm -hmm. But do you also feel that the films are also influencing this, the comic book storytelling today? I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. I mean, you go to a Comic-Con and a lot of the fans are fans of the films and they don't really know the comics. The, fan, the, the movies have eclipsed the comics because they're reaching more eyeballs. And, you know, people think of Iron Man, they don't think so much of maybe comics that Bob Layton drew. They think about Robert Downey Jr.'s head, you know, in the Iron Man suit. That's, you know, film is a powerful medium and millions of people see it and they make a lot of money off of it. The shame, the huge shame of it all to me is that the people who benefit from it are the, the actors and the producers and not the people who drew the comics who came up with the stuff to begin with. So, you know... Uh, it's kind of a shame that it's come to that, but that's the way things go. I have to know, who were the artists who influenced you? Uh, Harvey Kurtzman, the creator of Mad Magazine, Don Martin, any of the mad artists, uh, uh, Antonio Prahias, uh, uh, Mort Trucker, Jack Davis. Jack Davis, he's the king, he's the, the main guy, I love him. Uh, who else? Um, Gene, De Gene Deitch, great animator from the, the 50s who basically was a real pioneer in TV animation and he did Tom Terrific. He did some really weird Popeyes and Tom and Jerry's and, and he lives in Czechoslovakia now and he's pushing 100 and he's still working and he's still a viable guy. He's an influence of Bob Clampett. Uh, Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones was the, the king of them all in his peak. Uh, uh, 
Mike Maltese, great story artist. Uh, I don't know, just a, a, a bunch, a bunch of really talented cartoonists. Uh, uh, Terry Tunes, I love Terry Tunes. Uh, Jim Tyre, great Terry Tunes animation animator. Uh, about a million people. Anything, anything that you saw on TV from 1960 to, to, to 1980, just all of that was a big influence, you know. As we both spoke about earlier, you know, our, I, not even arguably, the 80s was a tremendous decade for, for the comic industry. Um, and the 90s, not so much. I mean, I think that's when the, the market got oversaturated. But do you feel like currently this is a new renaissance for the comic industry? I don't really know. I, I haven't, I've got some comic book work I'm doing. I'm working on a project this month with a friend. Uh, and I do little comic things here and there, but I really don't know what's going on in the comics industry. Uh, I do know that there's a lot going on in animation right now. There's more animation being produced than ever. Uh, there's a lot of big players, Netflix, Hulu, they're buying tons of animation. Uh, it's a great time to, to be in animation. The, the, the kind of downside of that is it's very corporate and it's a tough living. You know, working in animation, they work you to death. They, you sign away the rights to everything uh, if you're a creator. And my experience is when you're working on a movie or a TV show, the day the artwork is done, you're gone. You know, thanks, it's been for a great bye. You're only as good and, as the last thing you do, right? Yeah, and, yeah. The, and the artists are usually the first people to go. But the, the assistants and, the, and the, the middle management people work year round and have full benefits, you know. So uh, artists are easy prey, they're easy to take advantage of. Uh, and we, we sort of create a lot of the stuff that people rely on for their entertainment, but it doesn't mean that we're particularly benefiting. You know, a lot of people in comics now aren't making any more for a page of art than they made in the 80s when I was in comics. You know, it's a real hard way to make a living. And the only way that a lot of us can make a living is to go to comic cons. It's like being in a band and nobody buys CDs or records anymore, so you have to go on the road. So I'm on the road, we're on the road. You know, that's the lifestyle. It's kind of what you have to do to get by these days. Right, I mean, but, but for the most part, do you feel that, you know, pressing the flesh with fans who like really admire your work is cathartic in any sense? It's absolutely cathartic and it's, it's, it's my gift and our gift to the fans is to keep these characters alive. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but they're rebooting all the Nicktoons except Ren and Stimpy. There's, and, and a couple of times they've, they've tried it and they always go back to John Kay. You know, it's like, no, what about Bob? The guy who saved the show. What about Bob, the guy who finished John Kay's cartoons? What about Bob, the guy who had more to do, arguably, with those original episodes than any other one person. Because I was doing everything. I was painting backgrounds, I was doing layouts, I was storyboarding and supervising pretty much all of it, you know, and picking up the pieces of, of the, the Spumco implosion, you know? And it was a real tough decision for me to do that. Uh, and uh, I was seen as a, as a, as a Judas by some of my coworkers and and dear friends, and uh, because because of that, for several years after that, I couldn't get any work because everybody hated me because I was the guy who stole John Kay's creation away from him, you know. And 
it was it was awful. It was terrible. And uh, I would I would go into Cartoon Network looking for work, and people would avoid me. They would see me, and it was like I was Lazarus rising from the grave, like you know, like with bulging eyeballs and earthworms climbing out of my ears, and you know. It almost sounds like the McCarthy era, like you were blacklisted. I wasn't blacklisted, but it, it didn't help. It didn't help, and I, I could still get work, but I would pitch shows, and it, it wouldn't work. I, I, pitched, I pitched a show to Fred Siebert, uh, the Frederator guy, and I, I had been uh, working on it and talking to the Hanna-Barbera people it was before they became Cartoon Network, and uh, Jim Gomez and I pitched a show to them, and they loved it. And then I, I come in and, and pitch it to Fred. Well, at that same time, Fred was doing a thing called What a Cartoon. And it was a pilot series, and they did 40 animated shorts. And fully half of them were straight up Ren and Stimpy ripoffs, you know, which is fine. I don't care about that. But I pitch it, I pitched the show to him, and he laughs through the whole pitch, and he stands up and shakes my hands and says, Well, at least we finally got to meet, and walks out of the room. And I look at the woman and she looks shocked and she said, I'll call you later. So I go home, she calls me and I said, what's up? I said, did Fred pass on the show? She said, yeah, he passed. And I said, did he say why? She said, yeah. And I said, why? She said, you don't want me to tell you. And I said, yeah, I want you to tell me. And she said, well, he said that your work looks too much like a lot of other stuff we're doing right now. And I said, well, thank you for considering us. I appreciate it. I got to go. I'm going to kill myself now. And I hung up the phone because I couldn't sell any work because everybody was doing like the show we just did. And the, suddenly the market was flooded with Ren and Stimpy-like cartoons and nobody was interested in talking to me. Even, even though you were the source. I wasn't. I was a source. One of the I sources. was not the only source. You know, it was originally it was me and John and, and Lynn Naylor and Jim Smith. There was four of us, the original creators. But, and I don't ever, ever want anybody to think that I think that this show came from me alone. It didn't. And it was a lot of talented people uh, putting, putting their, their, their best into something that they believed in and cared about. But it's just weird. Uh, it's, it's strange. And there's a lot of hard feelings about the show still. And a lot of it comes from John Kay and his legacy, you know, of trying to destroy the show that he created. And he's done a pretty good job of it so far. That's an eye-opener. It is an eye-opener. There's a movie out. Uh, remember I mentioned before? Remember? A documentary? A Sundance documentary? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, called The Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, The Ren and Stimpy Story. Okay. And uh, How candid is it? Well, just, this is, this is, there's some irony. I'm a big fan of irony. I love irony. Even if I'm the... I'm the, the on the, the, the receiving end of it, it's fine, it's, I appreciate it, is um, when they first approached me, they, they wanted it to be a real love letter to Ren and Stimpy. They wanted to do new animation, they wanted it, and, and, and we all agreed from the beginning, the people involved, that we weren't gonna make it a beat up John K. Fest. We weren't gonna be negative about him, we weren't gonna say anything bad about him, and we were just gonna, it all be, be about the love for the show and talk to the fans and talk to famous people who love the show and, and, and I got interviewed for it and I did tons of artwork for the Kickstarter campaign which was the rewards that the, that the, the people who donated to it so the film could get made. So I did artwork to, to give to them and uh, the, day, the 
the day they finished cutting the film, it came out that John had been Me Too'd by a couple of women that said that he had, he had, uh, um, that had, had, had sexual relations with them when they were like 14 and 16 years old, when he was like 40. And this was stuff he did after he was no longer involved in the show. Stuff he wasn't doing when he was involved with the show because he was in a relationship with Lynn Naylor. And uh, so because of that, they pulled the show worldwide, all the reruns, and they just buried it, you know? And so these guys making the movie suddenly were like, what are we gonna do? And I talked to him, I said, look, you gotta own this. You can't, you can't put out a, a, a piece of sugar fluff right now because that's gonna look bad. It's gonna look like you're trying to help him or protect him. You gotta, you gotta address this. So they did, and so they interviewed him, and now the film, I haven't seen it, I'm not gonna judge it till I see it, but the last 15 minutes of the film are him and about him and his face on the screen. And I have panic attacks thinking about even looking at his face. Wow. Like actually having to sit and stare at his face and listen to his voice, because I haven't seen him since 1992, and he's nothing but a source of nightmares for me. You know, you know the, the dream you have where you're in high school and you're in your underwear and you can't find your locker or your social studies book and you're lost and you're late for class and all that? That dream has been replaced with me since then of I'm, I, I have to go work at an animation studio and John's in charge and I have to work for him and I have to be nice to him and everybody who works there hates me and they look like him, they dress like him, they wear glasses like him, they dance around like an idiot like him and that's, that's, that's become a, a part of my psyche since then, you know, it's terrible. I run into people who have worked for him in the years since at, at like Cartoon Network and they introduce themselves and they look at me and say, yeah, I, work, I worked on the adult party cartoons, you know, and, and I look at them and I look in their eyes and the expression I see is pain, sorrow, regret, and hatred. And, and then- For this, you or the experience that they're going through? For both of us. Wow. And then, and then there's this, this moment where we look at each other and we just hug. You know, it's like somebody who has an abusive Survivors father. Survivors of John Kay. If people who have any, and I, I equate him with an abusive father figure. Because we all looked up to him, we all admired him. And going in to show him your work was called the beating. In my office, next to my desk, there was a hole in the wall with a sign above it that said John's knees. And when somebody had too much, they'd come in and kick the wall to just vent, vent their, their anger. That's a shame. It sounds like there was no sort of motivation or way to incentivize creatives. Well, in spite of that, everybody involved with the show was determined to make sure the next cartoon was funnier than the last one. Uh, a lot of people, or, or that, that the, the drawings were better, the animation was better. A lot of people say, well, the first season's great, but then it went to shit and the game show sucked. Fuck them. The, John, the shows that we made with John were months behind schedule. Stuff was done and done and redone and redone and polished. And, you know, he didn't care about deadlines. He didn't care about budgets. He sent a note to the network saying, I can no longer be held responsible for budgets or deadlines. Sorry. And he didn't care about that. So those shows were done on enormous budgets in over a period of time, double as should have been. Simbi's Invention took a year to make. It should have taken six months to make. So to compare those cartoons with cartoons that were done on a, on a, on a tighter schedule, 
producing twice as many cartoons with a much bigger crew to meet those deadlines. You can't compare them because what we were doing is we were meeting our deadlines and finishing the shows, getting them done, getting them done, and not redoing stuff and not driving the animators crazy, making them reanimate stuff, which was perfectly fine. So sure, if you, if you overwork something to the point of perfection, that's great, but it's not the mark of a successful director or a successful show. It's the mark of a madman who over obsesses about getting stuff to be perfect or the best or his ego or whatever like that, you know? It's just not realistic and it's why he got fired. And I, 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 walk, I walk around with this in me like a disease. I've had it ever since. And people come up to my table and they start bringing it up and it just comes out. I can't stop it like it is now. What you're witnessing is my pent up anger and my pent up resentment that I've been carrying around for close to 30 years. Do you feel it helps more to speak about it or? I don't, I don't feel anything, I can't help it. You know, I try to be a better person. I didn't really like who I had become hanging around with John Kay every day. I was kind of acting like him. We all were. It was like we were the bad boys of animation. We were like the Rolling Stones. And we didn't care what people thought about us. We didn't care that, that you know, uh, that we were kind of being jerks. We, we thought it was funny. You know, it's like, like being on the Howard Stern show. You're, you're you know, if you, if you can take the jokes and take some ribbing, cool. If you can't, get out. You know, that's how it was to work there. So I didn't really come out of that feeling very good about myself. Uh, I had to take on the show when no one else would and take the responsibility to make it happen. And it wasn't because I was a particularly good leader. It wasn't because I knew how to work with people. It's just because I was willing to do it and I had the chops to make the cartoons. And, if, and they came to me, the day they fired John, they said, look, we just fired John and we're shutting Spumco down today. If you're not willing to finish John's cartoons and run the rest of the series, there'll be no more Ren and Stimpy and we need to know right away. So I went to his office and I said, I knocked on his door and he was hiding in his office. He wouldn't talk to anybody but me, he's hiding. And I said, John, they want me to, to finish the shows they want me to finish your shows. They're talking about a feature, but I told them, and I said this to them, I can't agree to this until I talk to John. I went and talked to John, and I told him that. He said, do it with my blessing. I'm honestly, I'm relieved to be out of it. It was killing me, and I can't do it anymore. And I said, okay, I wanna tell you something. I am going to finish your cartoons. I'm gonna put the best guys on it. I'm gonna spare no expense, and I'm gonna do full layouts, full character layouts, and I'm not gonna take a lick of credit. I want you to know I'm gonna protect your vision. I'm not gonna let anybody ruin your cartoon. And the way he thanked me is he blamed me for his losing his job and for being, and, and that I stole his show from him. So my mission has been since then to be as good a person as I can be and to let him just burn his own castle to the ground because it's what he does. And eventually, and at first, everybody thought I was the bad guy, but he proved himself to be somebody who's impossible to work with and whose ego is, is uh, unrealistically large and overblown and as someone who is abusive. He's not just abusive to women, he's abusive to co-workers, to artists who work for him. And, and he's not a nice person, you know? And I, I have no use for him or anything. I haven't looked, the only thing I've seen that he's done since 1992 are the two, uh, openings for The Simpsons.
The first one I saw with the couch gag, I was shocked when I saw it. I thought it was somebody making fun of John. And when I saw his signature at the end, I was shocked. Like, wow, this is what he's become. This is his insanity, full blown, and making this animation which just looks like a madman made it, you know? Uh, so I don't really have any use for him and or, or, or his BS or baloney or anything he has to say. Uh, I don't think he's a good person. And it's a shame that we're not still watching Ren and Stimpy new shows. Uh, and. It, and I feel like it's been his mission to destroy it all along. I did a drawing years ago of John standing above Stimpy with an ax raised over his head and Stimpy's chopped up and he's looking at him crying and saying, but I love you. I still have that drawing. That somewhere. is heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. The whole thing is heavy. Yeah. There's a book you can read called Sick Little Monkeys written by Thad Komarowski. Get the new issue. There's a lot more art in it, but, uh, the new, the new uh, uh, copy of the book. But it, it, it really goes into depth about all the dirty laundry and all the, the, the BS and the problems. They interviewed a lot of people. And it, it, it's a real eye-opening uh, account of what went down. That's, first of all, thank you for being so candid. I mean, it, it, that experience sounds extremely traumatic and my observation, having been at Fanfare for the past couple of days and watching you interact with fans and students and people who want to get into the medium comes from a place of care. And I know you mentioned earlier, I didn't like the person that I became, but it seems like you're getting past it in a way of coming from a place of kindness and paying it forward. I heard you talk to one of the students the other day and to, to give a kid who wants to do this, that type of support is exactly what they need coming from someone like you, who these students sees as an icon. So uh, my personal observation is that you're doing everything right. It was the Thanks. most touching thing to see. Thank you. Well, that's why I teach. Uh, my mentors, when I was a kid, I asked, how can I repeat it? They said, no, you have to pay it forward. You have to, you have to teach kids when they come up to you and ask you. And you, you got to them, give them everything you've got. Give them everything you've got. And just give them all the love and support you can because uh, you know, artists are easy to take advantage of and, and, uh, and people do that. And it's kind of a shame. So I, I want them to be strong, I want them to be brave, and I want them to be fearless, and I want them to do whatever they want to do. And I teach at SVA, and I, my first day, I tell them, if you want to be an artist, you got to be honest, because whatever you say has to come from the, the heart if you want to really connect with people, because you have a superpower. You can communicate with people on a, on a subconscious level. Your art, you could, you could do a painting and die, and a, a hundred years later, somebody could see that painting and have it a profound effect on somebody. Because of the honesty and the love that you poured into that art is still in there. It's infused in the canvas. It's a tangible, real thing that will survive past you. And that's the power of art. That's why you can look at a Sistine Chapel and it just blow your mind away because somebody put so much of themselves into that and it's real and it has to be honest. It has to come from the heart. And that's the key to the power of art. You know, so I tell my students, you can't lie anymore. No more lies about anything. Everything that's wrong in the world today is because of greed and dishonesty. And the only way we can beat that down is by being pure and being true and taking care of people and not putting up with anybody's bullshit anymore and calling people on it. Don't let them get away with it. And don't let, let somebody take the moral high ground because they've 
prescribed to some religion or another because a whole lot of that stuff is crap. It's fairy stories and has nothing to do with reality. And the thing is, is that people who uh, abuse power use it to control people because if you'll believe that story, you'll believe any story. And I can, if I pretend to be religious and I pretend to be God-fearing, then you'll believe any crap I tell you. And, it, and it, it's just shocking to me that anybody buys into that stuff, you know? And yet, the bad guys are pretending to be Christians or Muslims or whatever it is, whatever the, the, the brand of religion they have, wherever they live, to control people, to be rich, to be powerful, and, and to rule the world. And it's gonna be the downfall of us all. And I think that artists have the power to do something about it. You know, during the, the uh, 60s with the Black Panthers, they used art as a way to communicate. They, they, they connected with their community, with feeding people, with doing a lot of good stuff. The government made them look like bad guys, but they really weren't. But it doesn't mean they were weak, it means they were strong. And they, and they weren't afraid to stand up to the establishment. And art was a part of that, that thing. So I think that if artists today decide that they're not gonna put up with this crap anymore, and they're gonna use their art to communicate, I think it could, it could cause change to happen quickly. You know, but they got to do it and they got to be brave. The other thing is that I never heard of an artist who was forced into being an artist. And I think as creatives, if you make that happen for yourself as a way of life, that you have the luxury of having chose your career and not have it choose you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, too, is that a lot of times you got to do other stuff to make a living. Most of my career, I've, I've been making other people rich working on their shows. And I, I have so many ideas on my own and show concepts that I would love to pitch to people. And I go pitch them and I see their eyes glaze over and they're really looking for the next SpongeBob. And my attitude is like, why would I want to copy a cartoon that I work on now, which is kind of a copy of a cartoon I already did? I don't want to do that. I want to do something that's completely new, completely different. And I want to do something that inspires people to create something else completely different, you know? Well, that's interesting because do you feel that the OTT, like over-the-top streaming and on-demand society that we're in now has diluted or ruined cartoons or animation? I don't know. I really don't watch cartoons anymore. I, I, I've, seen the, I've only seen The Simpsons a few times. I just, I'm kind of over cartoons. I still do it for a living, but I, I storyboarded a couple episodes of SpongeBob and I sent them in and, and if I see them, it'll be lucky. Cause I, not that they don't want me to see them or they don't care. It's just that I'm feeding a machine and I'm not necessarily at the receiving end of that machine. I'm not part of their audience. So a lot of the work I do, I never see the end product of it. I, I worked on the last SpongeBob movie doing uh, character layouts and I still haven't seen the film. I hear it's great, I don't know. But I encourage people that, that say that are in advertising or something like that where they're just satisfying some some sort of corporate deity or whatever, to make sure you do something for yourself. Make sure you do something that satisfies your artistic integrity or whatever kind of artistic drive you have. Because otherwise, you're, you're gonna end up being miserable and you're gonna be resentful and, and there's a chance you could turn into a, a drunken hack. You know, it's happened before. I, I think a big part of being a creative or an illustrator or an artist is that being a creative is more about surrender than control. And if you're comfortable with balancing the art and the commerce, 
it'll serve you well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, and guys, if you want to check us out, you can look at our uh, Facebook page called Bob Lab Studios. And we have stuff you can buy. You can uh, post stuff, you know, and we can chat. So check us out. Listen, Bob, a lot of us spent the better part of four years at the High School of Art and Design uh-huh. trying to emulate you and your style unsuccessfully because there's only one Bob Camp and... You were candid, you're amazing, and you're a true gentleman. Thanks again, Bob. You're amazing. All right, dude. Thank you. Hey, everybody. What a time to be alive. I'm at the High School of Art and Design for Fanfare NYC, and I'm here with Sari Adams, one of the organizers of the event. Sari, how are you? I'm good. And you? Doing well. Thanks for joining me. I know you. Thanks for taking this downtime to speak to me. It looks like it's a huge event. I was here last year, and um, it seems like this year it's really gained traction and it's become bigger and better and as a high school of art and design alumni i went here some time ago i'm not going to put a number on that by the (laughs) way we never could have dreamed that there would be something like this and on a creative level to see all the students who are so creative there's a whole other level to this that's event planning that shows me a maturity in those students that i know i never had as a student here Tell me about how how you got involved with it. Uh, About three years ago, my daughter was accepted at the school, and I decided to go to the first PTA meeting because I had this idea, you know, my father-in-law, Neil Adams, went to the school back in, I won't put a number on it either, 19-dickety-2. The Neil Adams. Yes, the Neil Adams. And when she was accepted, I was like, we need to give back. I said, I want to run a Comic-Con for you here. It sounds like you guys don't offer it, which is amazing to me. This is the only school in New York City that generates career readiness for animation and cartooning. This is a major here. So I just felt like there's almost an injustice for there not to be a show here. I know there's shows at other schools that are not of this size, but also don't teach this stuff there. This is not their majors or anything as complicated or involved at those schools, and yet we don't have a comic convention here. It just just didn't make sense. So Miguel, who is a big comic geek, had his eyes wide, and uh, it's all kind of history from there. This is our third show. So yeah, the first one was in 2018. It was a very, very small show. Uh, we didn't have that many guests, and uh, I think th- that year, we ha- the first year we had Dan Parent and Mike Holmes, a couple, uh, Dan Parent, as you may know, is from Archie, Mike Holmes uh, did the comics and design- a lot of designs for Adventure Time, things like that, Chrissy Felmuth, who was working at Titmouse Animation, uh, but again, it was, it was small, it was our first show, but the kids were hyped up. You know, the, I believe the only show that they were going to at the time was New York Comic Con, and this really allowed them to have an outlet to be entrepreneurial. So two more shows later, here we are, and it's very time-consuming. It takes me about four or five months of planning. That's all my nights and weekends, given they have a nine-to-five job, and it's uh, me and six, seven other parents, and it's a... You know, I've been doing a lot of shows with Neil, but you learn a lot of things along the way. So it's a multi-talented, multi-faceted kind of thing that you have to jump up on to do. That really leads me into my next question is, how long in advance do you start planning the next fanfare? I start in late August, early September, and uh, 
from there, that's when we start doing the invitations for guests. And then it's programming, preparation with the kids, laying out, doing the floor plans, contracts, tables, the whole nine. And are the kids, like the students, are they involved in the event planning process? It's a mix. So this year's our first year where we had a Fanfare Student Committee. We asked the students to tell us who they'd like to see at the show, uh, see if they could reach out to people that they admired or like to see, and then, you know, send us photos for social media. Very light things. When it comes to the table layouts and the planning, that's all me. Because the PTA produces the show sort of with the school, like we have to work with each other to do it. The, the agreement we have is only students that ha pass their classes can participate as sort of a reward. That's a great way to incentivize them. It has been a fantastic way to yeah. incentivize them because I hear some students can make a few hundred dollars here at the school when they're uh, selling. You know, the one thing I find that's refreshing about Fanfare NYC is that, you know, obviously, the cons have, have really grown. I mean, you know, San Diego Comic-Con pretty much takes over the whole city. New York Comic-Con is huge now. Ten years ago, it wasn't. Fanfare NYC gives people a chance to get into a more intimate environment with creators. It's, it's accessible. Yes. And that's what I like about it. The original tagline for this show uh, was, Not Another Comic-Con. I didn't want to call this show Art and Design Comic-Con. I was like, no. I know for a fact there's, you know, Xavier Comic-Con and Forest Hills Comic-Con, New York Comic-Con, East Coast Comic-Con. And I wanted fanfare to be a little different. I wanted fanfare to be its own brand and offer something that people knew was going to be a little different. The point of fanfare is art education focus. Yeah, we got fun things, right? But each guest, we want to encourage that they participate in the education of the students and the attendees here. You know, we flew in Abe Audish. Abe Audish is a Cal Arts professor. He is a director of Cartoon Network. We didn't just choose any animator from California. We chose one with an education background. So the students here, this, any honestly student that wants to come and pick the brain of a, of a professor from that school, which is, has a 6% acceptance rate, this is the opportunity to pick his brain. This is the opportunity to get your portfolio review, figure out how they do things in what's essentially the Disney factory. This was not just a, a comic convention. This was an outlet for exactly what the school was built for. It's a, this is a vocational school. You don't leave here just college ready. You leave here career ready. If it wasn't for this school, there would be no Neil Adams. And that's really it. And he can tell you the exact same thing. My prediction? Fanfare NYC is this horseless carriage going downhill. It's not going to stop. <laughs> I think, like, it's out there already. It There's is. no denying the social I, I media buzz I, of the event. I can't, I can't put it back in the bag. It's, <laughs> the, it's, the cat is out. It's bigger than all of us. Absolutely. I got to tell you. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. It benefits the school and the students. 100%. Fantastic. And there's no event like Fanfare NYC, and you really help put this together. It's quite extraordinary. I can't wait for 2021. Yeah. I can't wait for 2021. See you next year. See you next year. Count me in. Ladies and gentlemen, Sari Adams, co-founder and event director of Fanfare NYC. Thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Man, what an amazing time I had at Fanfare NYC, but Wattpa Nation, 
I gotta put a pin in this because there's so much more to be had that's too much for one show. I got a lot more amazing guests to share with you, so we're gonna pick up next week. But special thanks to the legendary and amazing Bob Camp, and tremendous thanks to Sari Adams, who's probably sleeping after organizing such a fantastic event. And again, next week, I'm gonna continue with my coverage of Fanfare NYC Part 2. And just remember that What a Time to Be Alive can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever podcasts can be found. So download, listen, and subscribe. And if you like the show, great. If you hate the show, well, that's fine too. Just please leave a review because I do read them, I value the feedback, and I use them to improve the show because you demand it. And remember, Wattba, W-A-T-T-B-A. It's our acronym. Stands for What a Time to Be Alive. And I also want to hear from you about the kind of content that you want me to cover. So reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Wattba Show. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Wattba Show. That's W-A-T-T-B-A-S-H-O-W. And if you have questions or general feedback about the show, things you'd like to hear, or random insults about my shitty New York accent, email me at wattbashow at gmail.com. And by all means, check us out on Facebook on the What a Time to Be Alive Facebook page. But that'll do it for this episode of What a Time to Be Alive, your geek culture podcast. I'm Lou Acosta. As always, thanks for listening. And even more so, thanks for putting up with my crappy New York accent. I will catch you soon. Hey, this is Bob Camp here, and you're listening to What a Time to Be Alive. And it is. It's a great time to be alive. And go out there, knock them dead. Have a great life.